Thanks, Ryan. And, and really, uh, this is uh, my first time to actually get to share as a member. So I'm just one of you today, and I just have the privilege of re- being able to share the uh, ongoing uh, series that we've been in uh, through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But, you know, we're one month into the new year, so a uh, question probably should be asked somewhere along the way. How's it going so far in 2016? I mean, if, I, you're taking a look uh, over this first month. I'm sure you begin with a great sense of anticipation what the year might be, and maybe even set out some uh, markers along the way you'd like to hit. And so it's a good time probably to ask, uh, you know, so how's it going? Um, I'm reminded of that very world-renowned theologian, Ferris Bueller, who said that life moves so fast, if you don't stop and look around every once in a while, you might just miss it. And I think it's very important, and that's why these Sunday gatherings are so vital to all of us. Because it's a great time to stop and look around and see what's going on in our life because we don't want to miss it. And by missing it, what I mean is to miss what you've been doing, what we've been doing through this series over the past several months. We've been digging down deep into one person's account of the stories and the events and the teachings of Jesus. One who was very careful to assemble them all together. Of course, he was a physician. His name is Luke. And we're going to look again at what we can learn about Jesus. I think in terms of uh, uh, pursuit for 2016, for me, it comes back to the same thing. Every year, kind of a reset for me. And the reset is this, just simply, I want to get to know Jesus better this year. I want to get to know him better. I want to experience all that he is. I want to know him in such a way that everything there is about him that I can possibly experience I don't want to miss any of his life, not any of it at all, none of it. Now, whenever you start thinking about the life of Jesus, I know for some, maybe over these last several weeks or months, maybe you just kind of dropped in, and this is kind of the first time you've ever really encountered Jesus. For a lot of people, the name Jesus is just kind of a foreign concept. They're clueless about his life, not out of any kind of objection. They just have never known. For others, like myself, that are... I guess you would call us seasoned Christ followers, to be able to look at the life of Jesus once again in fresh eyes, it it just reminds me that you just can't get enough of Jesus. There's just more. And that's what this series is all about. Now, when you start thinking about the life of Jesus and you look at his life, it was so countercultural. It was controversial. And it was not so much because anything about him was controversial. It was about his, what he did, where he went, some of the places he would go to. He would cross borders that nobody else would ever cross. He would uh, reach out and sit down and talk to people that nobody else would talk to. He would sit down and have meals with people that other people tried to keep at a distance. He would take the people that nobody else would choose, the people that didn't make the cut, He would reach out to the person who was the down and out, the person who was the leper. He would uh, elevate women in such a way that they'd never been elevated before. He would call children important and put them on his knee and and, and call them the most important in the kingdom of God. He just had this whole countercultural way about him. And he also spoke with authority when it came to demons, the supernatural world, and when it came to diseases or when it came to storms or fig trees, Jesus had this power about him that nobody could ever really explain. But he was so very, very controversial. 
in his day and time, particularly with the religious elite, the religiously establishment. Because Jesus had this uncanny ability to see beyond the surface, to see what was really in people's hearts. There was nothing hidden from his eyes. He could see, he could discern in such a way. And as a result of that, the religious elite in particular, the religious establishment, the people who along with the civil authority of the Roman government kind of had this level of power over people's lives, there were so many different occasions, and we're going to be seeing it again today, where they made every effort that they possibly could to get rid of him, to shut him up. And we're going to look at that this morning. And we're going to see as they begin to press in on Jesus in a way unlike we've seen before. And it's going to be very revealing as well as applicable to your life and mine. To that end, let's pray together. Will you join me? Father, uh, we can't get enough of the revelation of yourself so fully in the person of your son. We thank you for this glorious message and story of... Our gift of salvation in the person of Jesus. And we, we don't want to stop short. We don't want to say, well, I've heard that story or I know about him. There is so much yet that we've had to experience. So much of his life that we want to become our lives. And so no matter where we are this morning, whether we're just curious and just exploring or whether we're a Christ follower, been hearing the message of Jesus for years, Make it fresh, make us hunger even more to know Him better and deeper today. Because when we know Him, we know you. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to pick up the story as Luke would tell us in uh, chapter 20. So I'm going to invite you to follow along if you would. And we're going to pick up the story there, beginning at uh, verse 1. Luke chapter 20. And before we kind of get into uh, where we are in terms of Jesus, and by the way, let me ask you this. Can you think of anybody that is more refreshing or riveting than the person of Jesus? Doesn't get any better than that. And so for us to take the time to do this, it's one of the best exercises we could possibly go through. And when you begin to look at the kind of the backstory that leads up to Luke 20, you can see why Jesus stirred up crowds and caused people to kind of back up and, and, and question who he was. You go back into Luke 19, you remember Jesus' encounter with, in Jericho with the uh, Zacchaeus, who was, if he had a license plate today, in that day it would have been Mr. Kickback. He was a tax collector, he was a thief, and he was a, a, a traitor. And yet Jesus said today... Uh, your whole life is going to be changed. I've come to, just for a guy like you. And the people around thinking, what is this all about? How could you reach out to somebody that's such a low life like Zacchaeus? And then Jesus moves from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he, he gets there and he finds out Mary and Martha and, uh, are, are grieving over the loss of their brother. They're close. If Jesus had a safe place in that day and time, it was Bethany. He would go there, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were always there to take care of him. Lazarus has died. He goes to the gravesite. He calls Lazarus out of the grave, and then Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The person who puts their trust in me 
Even though they're dead, yet shall they live. That kind of a statement was riveting and revolutionary to say that I am, ego I me, I am. Not in an arrogant way, but in a statement, this is who I am. I'm revealing myself to you. And so, I mean, word about Jesus got out. And that, I'm, I'm sure people were stunned by that kind of a statement. In fact, in John eleven forty five, 45, just listen to what the a religious elite were thinking. Therefore, many of the Jews who had seen and visited Mary and, and had seen what Jesus had done, raising their brother Lazarus, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And their chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting. And they said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing these amazing miracles. If we let him keep going on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away our place. We have to get rid of him. He has to be stopped. And in the light of this, not soon after, Jesus kind of ups it one more time in this uphill climb of his own personal life. He rides in Jerusalem, not as some conquering Roman military commander on some stallion with all of his uh, enemies in his train, captive and humiliated. But instead, as we well know, he rides in on the coat of a borrowed donkey. And the people that make up his train, the people who have been formerly lepers or prisoners or individuals who had been down and out, and now they're a part in that ragtag aggregate group of disciples, and they're following Jesus. And all of the city is stirred. All of the, the, the crowds are beginning to gather. But even as Jesus is moving to the city, something's very revealing. He weeps over the city. But there's this growing frenzy of anticipation. What's going to happen next? And then Jesus, as you just recently remember in the study of Luke, he goes to the temple, the first place he goes, and he exercises an authority. He cleans it out so he can enter in. And in that moment, he moves on to the religious elite's turf and he gets rid of everything that was very profitable to them. And in that particular moment, Jesus moves into the day that we're going to look into to this morning in Luke 20. And as we're looking into this, just feel the mood for a moment. What kind of mood would it be? All the things that we've just described. It's intense. It's an intense atmosphere. And Jesus is going to move into a full day. In fact, this one day that we're entering into is the one day that's described more than any other single day in the life of Jesus. In fact, one-fifth of the Gospel of Matthew is dedicated to this one day that we're going to begin right now. It's early in the morning. And... There's this atmosphere, it's tense, and we're going to move into what would seem like a mood and an atmosphere of, of controversy and confrontation. And so as we do, you're going to see that there's going to be various audiences engaged, but the people that are going to be there that are going to, in one of those kind of efforts to catch Jesus, to discredit Jesus, they're going to ask him a series of questions. In fact, six in total. And Jesus is going to respond to each one of them. Now, we all know what gotcha moments are like. You've been watching the debates? What is every candidate's desire to do? To pose some kind of question to make the other person what? Look like you don't want that guy for president. You don't want her for president. It's a gotcha moment. And that's what the setting is right here. 
They're wanting to trap Jesus in some way to expose him, to discredit him in the eyes of the people. So what do they do? Well, let's look at it here in Roman, excuse me, Luke 20 and verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they made up the Sanhedrin. These are the religious elite, the scholars, the religious authorities of the day. And they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? The very first question out of the box is, you've been doing things, who gave you the right to do what you're doing and to say what you're doing? Who gave you the right to come in and clean out the temple in the way that you did and, and upturn everything? Besides, you came into our week of passion and in the eyes, of, to, to just help you understand, it was kind of like the Super Bowl week for the Jewish people. And it was a time in which all the Jewish leaders were going to be in a place to where they would be overseeing all the observances. And Jesus comes on their turf and he upsets everything. Stirs everybody up. And he, they ask him this question. You know, why are you here and who gave you this authority? We're going to, we're going to do everything we can in the minds of the people to discredit you. So they raise this question. Now, it's very interesting how different that is. If you remember any time back from our study in Luke, if you go back several chapters in Luke 7, there was a Roman centurion who came to Jesus with a request about someone, his servant being healed. And it reminds us how in that story, how different it is in this story. Because in that moment, the Roman soldier said to him, just say the word and I know it will happen. He recognized the authority of Jesus. Here they're questioning it. They're not for sure they really want to honor his position, not so much position, but his power. You're going to stop and think about that for a moment. Let's push a pause button. Let me uh, just kind of make sure that we get what is happening here because it really relates to your life and mine. I've learned over time that uh, life will be very painful for me personally until I recognize and until I submit and place my life under the leadership and the influence and the authority of Christ in my life. Until I recognize that. As long as I'm questioning that, as long as I'm pushing back against that, as long as I'm refusing to let His leadership in my life drive who I am, direct and shape my life, as long as I'm looking at my life as kind of my own to kind of control, it's my stuff, it's, it's my career, it's my finances, it's my relationships. As long as I'm controlling it and not recognizing authority over that, then my life is going to get chaotic. And the chances of me making crazy bad decisions goes way up, exponentially high. Until I recognize his authority in my life. Let me just uh, ask you a question. And I want you to think about it all the way through the remaining time that we have left this morning. Here's the question. Do you trust the authority of Jesus? Or do you question it? Do you trust it? 
Do you think he knows what he's doing and has a position and personal right to give direction and shape every aspect of your life? Or is there this constant questioning of his authority over your life and all that you are? Which is it? I think a lot of times we have said something like this. Have you ever found yourself saying something like this? Jesus is first in my life. And what that means to me, sometimes it conjures up the idea that he's at the top of the list, but I've got all these other things in my life that compete with Jesus. So it's Jesus and. And that's where we get in trouble. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus over. Big difference. It's not Jesus and my marriage. It's Jesus over my marriage. Until we recognize His authority in that regard. Uh, let, me, uh, let me illustrate this for just a minute. A very simple way. Guys, you'll get this. Ladies, you don't have a problem with this. Guys, have you ever gotten up in the morning and just kind of in a hurry and un, you know, just rushing? You begin to button your shirt, but you get it out of order. You ever done that? You get the top button, you get it in the wrong place, and you know something feels awkward, but you don't know, you're uncomfortable, everybody else is looking on it, they don't really say anything except in their mind they're thinking, that really looks goofy, that guy's buttons are all out of order. And the simple kind of picture there for your mind, if you put the top button in order, then all the other buttons fall in place. And when we put Jesus over our life in every way, life takes off. I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about His life becoming our life. It takes off. In this particular situation, what are they doing? They're questioning Jesus' authority. Let's take a look at it a little bit further here. They're doing everything they possibly can. And Jesus, he did, in this particular instance, Jesus decides to take the game to them. And let's look at what he does and what he says. I, he answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question in great rabbinic form and tradition. What did he do? He answers the question with a question. Any of you happen to have middle school teenage girls? That's how they usually do, isn't it? You say something to them, and what do they usually do? Maybe you remember when you're a middle school girl, a high school girl. Parent says something, and then you do what? Answer, ask questions. And, and you, Jesus, in great rabbinical form, says, I will ask you a question. Now you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So the answer that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, they are setting up they, you know, a question for Jesus, and they're going to try to trap him, and now that snaps right back on them with his question. And he asked them, so tell me about John. And immediately, Jesus knows his crowd, the people are still pretty angered by his murderous execution by Herod. John was greatly loved by the people. But the religious elite never could embrace his message 
John's message was always on the same page with Jesus. They refused to accept John, but they knew the people loved John. So they're in this dilemma. The dilemma is if we say, hey, he's from God, then we're going to have to say, well, that makes you okay, because John said you were okay, because he was always pointing to you. But if we say, no, it wasn't from heaven, then the people are going to stone us. We're going to be in a bad place. This is not good. Can you see them huddling together and going, if we say this, nope, not good. And they come back and we go, we think we'll take a pass on this question. And what Jesus did here was not avoiding their question. What Jesus was doing was saying, you're not here seriously to learn about the truth. Because you're not here to really learn about the truth, I'm not even going to respond other than to ask you a question and show and expose your real motive. Pause here for a second because I think this is important for us. It's kind of a little bit of a sidebar, but it's an important discussion. Is it all right to question who Jesus is? Is it all right to raise questions about the person of Jesus? Is it okay to call into question what Jesus says about himself? And I just want to point you to a quote by Tim Keller because I think it's, it's, a, it's a great quote and I think it helps us here. Look it up on the screen. On the one hand, Jesus does not say what the new spirituality says, which is it doesn't matter what you believe, figure out what works for you. How convenient, no thinking necessary, no assessment. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, come and think. But on the other hand, he does not say to you what very often traditional religion says, don't question, just believe what we're telling you. Because we've told you that. No, Jesus says, come and think. Jesus wants you to explore. Raise your questions. And there's no safer place to do it than Charles River. Bring your questions. If you've got questions, doubts about who Jesus is, you're just not for sure you buy the whole thing. You're skeptical. Bring it on. Bring those questions. That's exactly what Jesus' first disciple, Philip, said to his brother Nathaniel, just come and see. Not in a come and see, go to the zoo and look through a glass window, but come and see, come and think, dig down into it, explore who Jesus really is. You'll be absolutely blown away. Bring your questions. Come on. It's great. It's all right. And so I, I, I just add that because sometimes in our thinking we think, well, we can't really question who Jesus is. Absolutely question it. If you're skeptical, if you're cynical and all you want to do is argue, then I think what Jesus does here is perfectly right. You're not serious about it. When you get serious about it, we'll talk about it. But you see, the primary reason people reject Jesus is not ac- academically or intellectually. It's because of what's deep down in their heart, whether or not they want him really to be a part of their lives. His authority. His leadership in their lives. Now let's go a little bit further because Jesus... In responding to all of this, Jesus then shares a story. We call it a parable. It's an illustration of a truth that's going to become so obvious. What we're about to read is one of the only three parables that's actually repeated in all three of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's agricultural like the other two are, and it's very insightful. In fact, as we're reading through this, any fifth grader could probably figure this one out. And I'm sure that the religious elite could too. 
Let me look, give you the cast of characters just so you know, and then I want to read the parable itself. Cast of characters, we're going to have the owner. That owner represents God. I'm going to give you the kind of whole thing away here at the very beginning, but I want you to read it with this cast of characters in mind. The vineyard represent the people of Israel. The tenants represent the religious leaders. The servants represent prophets from the past who pointed to Jesus. And the son represents the Messiah, Jesus. So let's read this parable, beginning at verse 9. Follow? And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, the owner, and he let it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. Uh, you, you have to understand something about a vineyard here for just a second. It was the most uh, economically agricultural venture in that day and time. An owner would go out, he would invest all of his capital into it, he would let it out, lease it out to tenants who would come work it, and then he would come back and say, look, if you'll just give me a 25 to 30% of the cut of the return on that, you can have the rest. So when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Uh, what you see here for just a second, and I think as we walk through this, I want you to follow and see how revealing Jesus is. It's very obvious if anybody's listening. The owner of the tenant, it represents God. The owner is saying to the tenants, I've invested all of this, and it's going to be to your good. This is for you. I only want a return of it. Small portion of it. The rest of it is yours. And I'm sure the people who are listening begin to conjure over their mind if they had any kind of biblical understanding whatsoever, the Isaiah's prophecy in a place called Isaiah 5, where once again the nation of Israel was described as a vineyard and how that God took care of it. And he watched over it and he tilled it. And what that is a picture of, pause here again. Please don't miss this. This is the way God relates to us. It's a picture of the promising goodness of God. How that God moves into our life and He's always looking for a way to display His promising goodness for us and in our lives. One of my favorite worship songs these days is the song that Chris Tomlin is, he didn't pin it, but he's kind of made it well known. You're a good, good father. And he is. The promising goodness to pause every once in a while and just begin to think about what is, what's the vineyard? What is all that God has poured out in, in my life? The goodness. And if you're in this room, regardless of where you are right now, you have to stop and go, yeah, God is good. Get up in the morning and you go, hey, God, you brought me safely into another day. I've got the breath of life. I'm alive. Thank you for the gift of this day. A very good friend of mine years ago, we haven't been in touch for years. He used to serve with me on staff. Similar in age, driving to another place to minister in recent days, along the way, began to feel pain in his chest, called 911 by the time they'd got there he died of a massive heart attack. We never know going into any good day like today to get up and go, God, you are so good. I am so grateful for the very breath of life itself. And sometimes it can be the fun kind of things. 
like a cannoli. I mean, that's good. I mean, God is good when you got a cannoli, right? From the north end. Right? Any of you agree with that? Right, absolutely. And I, I've lost you for the rest of the message. You're done. All you're thinking about is the cannoli. And I know that. But, and then you start, you know, you go from the, and then it gets becomes very real to you. Gail and I recently went to see her oncologist. And uh, many of you have heard her story at the women's retreat. But for the first time in January, we sat down in our doc's office for the first time in five years, instead of saying we think it's gone and it never come back, for the first time she says, it's cured. That's a good God. That's a good God. 30-year dream that Gail and I, it's first birthed in our heart 30 years ago, our first trip to Boston 30 years ago, a year ago this February. Just in recent weeks, all of a sudden, a dream that God put in our hearts 30 years ago, it has come to pass in recent days. God is good. The promising goodness of God. That's what, God, what, what Jesus is trying to convey here to all those that are listening. And so if you're in this room, take a moment and just thank God, I, I, I just thank you for everything I have. None of it belongs to me. You're the owner. You have all rights. I just have the responsibilities. I want to manage it, steward it so well. Every breath I breathe, every opportunity, gift, resource, it's not my stuff. It's not my life. God, you're the owner of it all. And I just place it in your hand. And then you see that they beat the tenants, right? The first time, let's go on and begin in verse 11. But the tenants beat him the first time, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and they sent him away empty-handed and he sent a third this one also they wounded and cast out question if you're the owner and the first group of tenants you send they come back and they tell their story what's your response to that done with these guys move it in not send anybody else but each time and i want you to see this in the story jesus very deliberately tells this the first time it says that they beat them. The second time it said that they shamefully mistreated them. The third time it says that they harmfully wounded them and cast them out. Each time the response is escalated in terms of its violence. Every time. In fact, the last word that he uses there for the last group, they also wounded and cast them out. That word wounded is the word from which we get our word traumatized. They were badly shaken and wounded deeply. When you stop and think about that, and, and you know who this is, this is all the people who have been pointing to the gospel and pointing to the one Jesus would send. They've all rejected God's prophets. But God, and this is another expression of God's character in this parable, not just the promising goodness of God, but the tenacious patience of God. What happens here? He what? Pursues. He's absolutely relentless. He doesn't let up. Isn't that good to know? Because sometimes what? We stubbornly reject. We stud, stud, you know, there are times that we don't want His leadership in our life. And what does God do? He just keeps pursuing. Just keeps pursuing. A tenacious 
patience. Let's continue on in the story. And then the owner of the vineyard said, verse 13, What shall I do? I will send my beloved one and only son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, remember who the son is. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Pause there for a second. I don't know what was in the thinking of the tenants, except maybe they thought the owner himself didn't come. He must be dead. Therefore, if we kill the tenant, then we'll have squatter's rights and it can all become ours. Their murderous intent they carried out, they have such distorted thinking. Let's just get rid of the son. And a pivotal moment here, because what do you see here? You've got the promising goodness of God. You see that, the goodness of God? Then you've got the tenacious patience of God. And now you have this l- persistent sacrificial love of God, sending his best, his son. You know what it's almost like God is saying? This is my final offer. Final offer. This is it. Sends his son. And a pivotal moment right here, Jesus asked this question. Verse 16, verse 15, latter part of it. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What's going to be his response? What's going to happen? They've rejected his goodness. They've not paid any attention to his patience toward them. They've killed and pushed aside this incredible, unfailing, sacrificial demonstration of love by sending his son. And then what does he say? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The ideal there is not only is God so good, not only is he so patient, not only is he so loving, But when you reject, you refuse His final offer, the only thing left for you to experience is the judgment of God. And that will happen. It's not that that's where God wants to go. He's going to keep pursuing. But if you get to that place where in your heart of hearts, you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing against Him, there will be ultimate consequences. And the chaos will play out in your life. In danger of His justice. Notice what it says. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. Who would do something like this? Jesus looked at them directly and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay on hands on him at that very moment, for they perceived that he had told this parable. Guess what, guys? This is about you. Jesus used a passage that we actually read a little bit from earlier, Psalm 118. It was a psalm that was actually penned to comfort the children of Israel, but there's a part of it that Jesus quoted, and he said, I'm the cornerstone or the keystone or the capstone, kind of three different descriptions describing his dimension. He's the cornerstone that holds everything together. He's the 
capstone that kind of is the point of which, uh, under which all of our lives should be centered. He's the keystone, the capstone. And he says, for some people, this message of who I am is going to be a stumbling block. And what he means is it's going to be offensive. But you know, that may not be a bad thing. Because if he's offensive and he causes you to think about him, maybe when you hear this message of the love of God and the grace of God, and you can't imagine that and it seems so crazy and seems almost offensive to even think that God could forgive in the way that he forgives, it will cause you to realize when you stumble to actually look to him. But others will reject him and they'll be crushed by the stone. Jesus is making sure that they hear the message in no unmistakable manner. They were so full of self-interest, they were wanting to get rid of him. They're wanting to shut him up. They're questioning his authority. They don't want him on the scene. And do you understand? Do I understand? You read this parable. If this is not about a story about bad, bad men, this is about the religious elite of the day. Biblical scholars, practitioners. And Jesus said, it's because of what's in your heart because you will not accept my authority over your life. You've rejected him. It's not up on the screen, but I'll just call your attention to it for a moment. In Psalm 118, in the verses that follow what I just read here, it says this, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 23 says, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in His eyes. And then comes a verse that we all know. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We, on our end, need to realize that what happened to Jesus on the cross, His death, the rejection, what seemed like the world pushing Him aside and pushing Him off the scene, was actually something that God ordained, sovereignly planned. Why? So out of that rejection, he might experience the death on the cross, and out of that death of the cross, our sins might be forgiven. He might raise from the dead, and this is the day. A day on the cross. And he was rejected, that we rejoice in, because in that day, that was the day of our salvation. The whole message is here. This one beautiful, simple parable. Now, if you'll read on, and we only have time to just touch on this, and then I want to wrap it up with two questions. You've been thinking about that question all the way through the message? Not about the cannoli, but the question. The question is, do you what? Question or trust the authority of Jesus in your life? Which is it? But he goes on, and here comes another question trying to catch Jesus. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, uh, pretentious, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to us to give tribute, pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a Daenerys which likeness and inscription does it say? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, 
Round two, guys, you lost it as well. They became silent. Now, a lot of times we look at this, and I only have time to just touch on it. A lot of times we look at this and say, well, this is the passage of Scripture said that we need to pay our taxes. But there's something more going on here that I think would have been very much in the minds of the people. The tribute that they had to render to Caesar, the Roman government, was 70 to 80% of their income. It was an unjust system, to say the least, and oppressive. So when they heard Jesus say, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and that which is God, that which is God's, what Jesus was saying, you trust the injustices of this world with me. Because it's under my authority. I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. You trust me. There may be times, though, a Martin Luther King moment, a Rosa Parks moment, when what the government is saying violates what God says. In those moments, we have to appeal to God's authority and we have to surrender, even though there may be, in the same way that Jesus did, sacrificially give up ourselves for the sake of the truth. Two questions after today's takeaway. Here's today's takeaway. You should already have it already figured out in your mind. It's very simple. Here it is. When you reject God's authority over your life, you always lose. That's a big takeaway from today. You reject God's authority over your life when it comes to relationships. God's ideal for marriage is, hey, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. I've got a great plan for you. Here it is. This is my plan. This is my purpose. I recently sat down with a very accomplished businessman. He's a Christ follower. <laughs> got three kids. But he said, I just, you know, for years I've struggled with my wife and, hey, you know what? I want out of this. Everybody's waving red flags in front of him. And basically it came down to him. what he essentially said was, I really don't care what God has to say about this. There will be painful chaos that he has no idea that he's going to experience. That's not to say that the message wasn't, the marriage wasn't messy. That's right. But there are other people that I know at the same time been in 10, 11 years of marriage it's chaotic, it's messy, it's not good, but they said, I'm actually going to put this under God's leadership. I'm not talking about an abusive type of relationship. I'm talking about a relationship where it's just messy and it's challenging. So I'm going to stay into it. I'm going to put myself under God's leadership. I'm going to let Him be my Redeemer in this. I'm going to trust Him rather than question His authority. God says, hey, look, I'm giving you this wonderful gift of sex. I want you to hold on to it. Don't mess around with it. Don't hurt people with it. Save it till marriage. No sleepovers. We go, ah, gotta try it out to see if it fits. Chaos, pain, hurt, harm. The demons one time asked Jesus. But what do you have to do with us, Jesus? And I think sometimes that's our question. 
when it comes to all the various areas of our life. Jesus, what do you have to do with my finances? What do you have to do with my, my downtime? What do you have to do with what I bring into my life in terms of what I view on television? What do, you have to, what do you have to do with any of that in my life? And yet, as I read in the Psalms early this morning, God is concerned about every single detail of my life. So I leave you with two questions. One you've already heard enough. I hope you've been thinking about it. Here it is. Do you question or trust the authority of Jesus in your life? And here's the question. Just take it away with you. Where do you need to trust him right now? With his authority, his leadership to drive the direction of your life. You know what the word authority means? It comes from the same word, author. What is an author? It originated with him. Who, where did the plan for your life originate from? Where did it come from? God, when you were being formed and shaped in your mother's womb, said, I've got a plan and purpose for your life. I'm the author of your life. Therefore, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Don't question me. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to allow us this morning to be reminded of your goodness to us through what we've been sharing and perhaps even through what we've been thinking. Thank you for allowing us to walk through these verses and to see a glimpse, beautiful glimpse of your goodness, promising goodness through your patience that's so tenacious, through your love that's so sacrificial. The authority that you have over our life is not a top-down, but it is a come-down. It is to give yourself to us through your Son in sacrifice and service. How can we not respond with trust in you? So, Father, today, whatever that area, our areas are, help us to know that to trust you is one of the greatest decisions of our life, your leadership in our life, over our life, to, to push away your authority is to put ourselves on a pathway that caused chaos in our life and hurt and harm in the life of others that's unavoidable. Thank you for speaking to us today. I love you for your willingness to keep teaching us and showing us the beauty of your son Jesus. We've seen him even today in a greater way. We trust and pray. Amen.